Thanks for downloading a 3CR podcast. 3CR is an independent community radio station based in Melbourne, Australia. We need your financial support to keep going. Go to www.3cr.org.au for more information and to donate online. Now stay tuned for your 3CR podcast. Communication Mixed Down. The show that takes a critical look at contemporary media. And explores the way we use communication to make sense of the world around us. From social media to citizen journalism. To the logo on the front of your favourite T-shirt. It's all part of the Communication Mixdown. Each week, Thursday, 6 to 6.30. Communication Mixdown. Cranking up. Right here on 3CR. This is Communication Mixdown. Hello, I'm John Langer. And this week, refugees and communication. First up, what happens in the communication exchange when refugees confront government bureaucracy face-to-face during interviews when they're officially applying for asylum in Australia? Then we turn to the potential of photography for empowering refugee women in the challenging and oftentimes stressful process of resettlement. Douglas McDonald Norman is our first guest on Communication Mixdown. He's worked for five years in the area of refugee law, and in that time he found some of the most common and complicated legal challenges that official decision-makers encounter become the questions regarding truthfulness and credibility when asylum seekers make their claims. Welcome to the show, Douglas, and thanks for your time. My pleasure, John. I'm happy to be here. Now, tell us about this process called Refugee Status Determination, or as it's called, RSD, because this is directly related to the issue you raise about truthfulness and credibility in asylum seeker claims. What actually happens face-to-face? Well, it varies from country to country. But the norm is that people who apply for asylum are subject to what's called individualised assessment. It's not about the group they're from. It's not assessment of a broader class. It's whether you, as an individual, face a risk of persecution upon being returned to your country of origin. And that will almost invariably involve some interview between you, the asylum seeker, and a decision maker who's charged with determining whether you face that personal risk upon return. That's what refugee status determination is. And so it's something which is not exclusive to Australia, but it happens in many countries. Is that the idea? Absolutely. The way we do it in Australia is obviously shaped by Australian law and to some extent by Australian bureaucratic culture. But this same process, looking at these same basic criteria and these same basic tests, happens all over the world in other nations and as conducted by the UNHCR. Right. I actually didn't realize that, and thank you for clarifying that. Now, you said uh, in the in the piece that I read that you wrote, and we'll give the details of that later on, but you said that decision-makers question asylum seekers about their lives and, and decide whether the answers seem to be consistent. They're looking for what you've called consistency in deciding whether a person is telling the truth. What's the problem with that sort of approach? Well... 
some of the basic metrics that we would use in our daily lives to decide if someone else is telling the truth don't apply in the unique context of refugee claims. If you spoke to someone and they gave two different accounts about what they've been doing that morning, you might think, well, if this had really happened to them, they would have been able to tell a consistent story. But refugee claims aren't necessarily like that. When you're talking about traumatic experiences or shameful experiences or even experiences that have occurred in a great hurry or with great emotional import, your ability to form a consistent memory or indeed to be able to relate it convincingly will be seriously affected. Talking about some of the most important and difficult events in your life can't be compared to the tests we use in our day-to-day lives to determine if people are telling the truth. Very interesting, and it, actually, it's 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 it rings. Uh, I mean, it's very very important in the sorts of things you're saying. In fact, you wrote there's an old cliche in refugee law, and I really like this: refugees don't come with a note from their dictator. It's one of my favourites, and honestly, the. It's interesting that that's an observation that comes from an American refugee law judge. The fact that we are all engaged in this consistent search for truth across jurisdictions, that we're all doing the same job, even in different countries and different legal systems, can be a source of solidarity. We look to how the Americans do it, they look to how we do it, and even though that means that bad practices can be transmitted from nation to nation, the experiences that we have as advocates and the experiences that we have in trying to change the system for the better can also be transmitted between countries. Mm. You also, uh, in the piece that you wrote, you talk about truth-telling and what you've called plausibility. And I was wondering if you could explain what you were getting at there. Well, plausibility is basically whether this seems like something that could have happened. If someone says to you, for example, that on their way to work this morning they were confronted by a tiger, you would say, that seems so inherently incredible, so extraordinarily unlikely, that it must be of its nature untrue. And But as in every example, you can't assess plausibility in a vacuum. It may seem completely implausible to have run into a tiger on your way to work walking down a Melbourne street. But if you were walking to work through the zoo or if you were walking to work in some other context, what's plausible takes on a completely different hue. So what we're looking for in plausibility assessment is whether something seems like it could of its nature have actually happened. Mm. And the other thing that I I thought was extremely important, and uh, I, I guess this is something which often we don't think about, is that this notion of plausibility isn't static in in terms of cultures. And you make that point very clear. And you say that it's the the decision maker sitting in an air-conditioned office in Sydney, uh, their context bears no relationship to perhaps what the refugee or the asylum seeker has gone through. Absolutely. And we see this all too often that decision makers will say, for example, I don't think that you could have escaped that, or I don't think you would have acted in that way, or if I was the person who'd taken you captive, I wouldn't have made that stupid mistake which allowed you to escape. I wouldn't have left the door unlocked. I wouldn't have left the window open. I wouldn't have taken pity on you. And in that way, decision makers assume that the way in which they think is the way in which everyone around the world thinks, or the way in which they imagine that they would react is a 
static and consistent reaction across all contexts, across all cultures. But that's not the way the world works. And we need to be really careful in making these plausibility assessments to ensure that we're not just transposing our own limited experiences onto other people. You, as a, a person involved in refugee law, have you seen these things happening in, in cases or in situations where you've personally been involved in the face-to-face context? Yes, I, I should note that um, obviously I can't discuss individual cases, partially because of my obligations of confidentiality as a lawyer and also with some regard to the nature of the work that I did, which was partially government-funded. Mm. But I can say that the observations that I've made in my piece are not particularly novel. Everywhere that refugee status determination occurs, these are the same basic metrics that get used. Decision makers always look to inconsistencies. Decision makers always look to plausibility. And because decision makers are human and because they're fallible and because we all lack that ability to recognize the limits of our own experiences, these same common errors occur everywhere. The answer isn't to necessarily change how we do it, but it's to ensure that decision makers have a greater understanding of the limits of their own experiences. Very wise uh, comments as well. And just to to finish up, I want to quote you back to yourself because this is something that you wrote. You said, asylum claims call for scrutiny, but not cynicism or instinctive distrust. And these difficult decisions, you say, ultimately need to be resolved through what you call empathy. Now, briefly, what would your recommendation be in confronting these sorts of dilemmas? It's a lot easier to throw stones than it is necessarily to put the glass house back together. I think that the answer... Part part of it, I think, comes from breaking up institutional cultures of distrust, ensuring that decision-makers do receive more support in terms of the caseloads they have to deal with Mm. and in terms of protecting decision-makers from the inevitable effects of large volumes of decision-making of often highly traumatic, often highly emotional cases. If you handle a very large number of cases over a very long period of time and if those cases are involved with their nature with issues of torture and trauma and displacement, then invariably some degree of cynicism is going to creep in as an instinctive defense mechanism. Mm. I think ensuring that decision makers are properly supported, ensuring that they have the resources and the, I I, I suppose, the uh, medical and psychological support necessary to deal with these caseloads is an important part of ensuring that decision makers can slow down, step back, and have that necessary detachment to be able to resist these instinctive habits of mind of cynicism and distrust. Mm. And I, I did like the way you put it in terms of empathy. And 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 I, th- I guess in my my old sociological way of thinking about things is uh, taking the role of the other is is what the sociologists used to talk about. And I think that's really what you're pointing to in, in a sense as well. Oh, I'd absolutely agree. And I think that that. That process of rejecting the essentialized other is crucial to building better models of refugee status determination. And that's not, that's not purely uh, from a place of naivety. It's not to suggest that asylum seekers are angels. It's not to suggest that they're devils, that they are 
human beings with the same internal variation, the same extraordinary internal diversity as any other subset. It's breaking down the idea that an asylum seeker is any way different from any other form of human being. It's been really interesting talking to you, Douglas, and I want to thank you for your time on Communication Mixdown and uh, all the best with your work. Thank you very much, John. It's been a pleasure to be here. I was talking there with Douglas MacDonald Norman, and he's a Sydney-based barrister who previously practiced as a solicitor and migration agent in the field of refugee law. And his article, which I was using as the basis of for, for the, our chat, can be found in Eureka Street, and it's called How We Decide If Asylum Seekers Lie, and the link will be put on the 3CR Communication Mixdown website. In 2016, 3CR published a book to celebrate the station's 40th birthday. Years in the making, Radical Radio, celebrating 40 years of 3CR, is a visually stunning account of the people and ideas that make up this dynamic station. At 300 pages, the book includes hundreds of images and over 50 features on programs, people, music and technology from across the decades. 3CR's Radical Radio book is now on sale for just $30. You can get your copy of 3CR's book at the station during business hours at 21 Smith Street, Fitzroy. Or online at 3cr.org.au forward slash shop. Get a piece of your own history. On sale for just $30. 3CR's Radical Radio is available now. This week we're discussing refugees and communication. Now let's turn to the world of the photographic image and more particularly how the power of making and showing that image can help women refugees find resilience and develop a sense of social agency and self-worth in the process of resettlement. Jaya Dantas is a professor of international health at Curtin University in Western Australia and she's been involved in a project exploring Refugee Women's Perspectives on Settlement in Australia using a research methodology known as PhotoVoice. Welcome to Communication Mixdown. Thank you very much. Now, let's start with why focus specifically on women refugees? Um, I've undertaken research on refugees and migrants since 2005. And one thing I found is that women refugees and women migrants are especially underrepresented in basically the in research as well as in um, the discussions with respect to resettlement, with respect to what happens post-conflict, etc. But I was more interested in their own agency and resilience and empowerment when they resettle in Australia. And I wanted to look at that agency and resilience in some form for those who are significantly marginalized, you Yes. Now, you used a methodology, I'm calling it a methodology, called PhotoVoice, and you better explain that a bit to us. As I understand it, it's, it was used in a lot of projects in various countries with marginalized groups. Yes. Um, I've used particip- participatory methods uh, in all my research. So participatory methods use communities and the voices of the people and basically are undertaken with the participants themselves. You know? So one such participatory method of research is photo voice. And with photo voice, we actually give each of the participants a camera 
and they work with a photographer, a qualified photographer, who gives them training in how to take photographs in light, in looking at um, angle, in looking at what sort of photographs to take, what are the ethical considerations that they have to um, be aware of. And once they take those images, we actually ask them to draw a narrative on those images or tell a story about those images. You know? So before they actually took the photographs, they learned the skills of photography. But after they learned the skills of photography, they chose what sort of themes they would look at in terms of the photographs that they would take. So one of the themes that they actually identified was family. The other theme was celebration. The third one was community and wider community support. The fourth one was the environment in Western Australia. Mm. And they took photographs on each of those themes and shared um, their voice from those photographs. And then the women themselves. So we had about nearly 45 women participate in the project. The mm. 45 women uh, took photographs, were given cameras. Out of that, about 25 women selected photographs that they felt they were happy to share to the wider community that would go in a traveling exhibition that would travel across possibly the world. You know, we mm, have taken mm. it to Greece. We have taken it interstate. Really? We, uh, it's now in different community libraries mm. in Western Australia. Mm. So uh, once they have selected the photographs, they actually share a certain narrative among the group and to the wider community. Now, I, I wanted. This is very interesting to to hear these things from you, and 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 to hear about this project. Were there any surprises, big surprises, or unexpected things that you found either in the photographs themselves or in the stories that were connected with the photographs? Uh, one of the things that came out really strongly was they they were really happy to be resettled in Australia. They found that. For the first time in their lives, they had peace. You know, their children could walk safely to school, you know, that they could actually go to their children's school and be and take part in the activities if needed. They felt that the library facilities here, the community libraries, were wonderful, you know. So all these were uh, positives that they shared, you know. The other thing that was unexpected was how... Um, the women loved having their own camera hmm. and actually took photographs of that and they wanted to share that. You know, for example, they took photographs of their children uh, jumping or of, of uh, a child who's, whom they call their little princess who gives them a lot of joy. And we were careful because we didn't want them to actually share those photographs with the community, but they said, no, we, we would like to share these photographs. Mm. We really don't mind. And then there was another photograph where a woman said that she tried and tried and ultimately she was so proud that she could now drive and had a driving license, so she wanted a picture near her car. <laughs> you know? so, that's, that's great. <laughs> so these, yeah, so Absolutely amazing. That's fantastic. And there were some photographs like, you know, celebrations, like to them, family was so important. Maintaining the food and celebrations was really important. So there were lots of photographs of celebrations and food and sharing that they that they do. And interestingly, we had women from the age of early 20s right until the late 60s. So we had a woman from El Salvador who was in her late 60s, and we had a woman from Iraq who was in her late 60s. And to them, even being here and being able to cook for their family and grow vegetables in the backyard was quite important, you know? mm. The Yes. And another theme that 
came out quite strongly was they that they realized like they are given uh, about 510 hours of English language support, but it was just not. They felt that was not enough for them to participate in the workforce. And what came out really strongly is that they would actually like to be. Um, con- they would like to be uh, to take part in the workforce. They would like to have jobs. You know, mm. but, uh, English is a limiting factor, and they would like to uh, uh, like some mentoring and support in how they navigate this difficult employment system in. Western Australia. Yes, you, that was one of the things that you mentioned was that the proficiency in, uh, in English was uh, was extremely important in the resettling settling process. Hmm. Yes, and they said that some of them came from countries of protracted conflict. So when you talk about Afghanistan or Somalia, hmm. it's had like 40 years of 30 years of conflict. You know, so they've had uh, decimate, decimated uh, education systems. Mm, so mm. They've had in- interrupted education. So basically, when they come here, they've had interrupted education. They don't have sufficient, they have learned in another language. So they have to actually gain some skills and they're willing to do that. They would like to actually be uh, learn the language better as well as get some skills here. Yeah? Now, speaking of skills, going back to the cameras, and, and, and you were looking at the, I presume you were, you as the researcher, and, and were looking at the photographs that the, the women refugees were producing. Did you think, this is just off the top of my head, but did you think they were becoming better, better photographers as they progressed and they started learning about how to take a photograph? Did you see a, a progression in that sense as well? Yes, of course. They, they, I mean, they absolutely loved having their little cameras. You know, so they had the little Canon cameras with a little zoom, you know, that they could take with them. So they and they learned how to download the ca- camera. So they learned all those mm, skills mm. of downloading the photographs to a laptop. Most of their children had a laptop, so they could do. They learned photo photograph selection and which photographs were not very good and why they were not very good. Mm. You know, they learned to ask people that, okay, we are going to take this photograph. Are you happy for us to take this photograph? You know? And uh, they, they felt that there was a conversation at home about uh, the photographs when they were taking the photographs. And this is something that has happened all over the world, wherever photo voice has been used, you know, because it has been used extensively in, in various parts. So it was used with homeless women in Toronto, you know, Canada, and it was used with uh, Nicaraguan migrants in Costa Rica, and it was used to understand reproductive health among women in China when the mm-hmm. One China policy came out in, in China and what were the feelings of the women. It was used by children born in brothels in India and mm-hmm. how it impacted their lives when their, when their mothers worked as sex workers. So all of this has had an impact when photo voice is used, but it's been used now with health issues in the United States where they are looking at... Um, cardiovascular disease or chronic disease or where they are looking at women with uh, HIV and how uh, using photographs and talking Mm. about the disease gives them a different narrative rather than stigma or discrimination, you know. Very interesting. And as you know, we're a, a program about communication, and I'm taking all of this in very, uh, in, in thinking it's, it's terrific sort of project because we are such a visual culture. And I think just learning uh, as a, if you think about it, the language of the visual culture using the camera is a, is a fantastic, fantastic skill to have, I think. And I think it has a flow-on effect because as it moves across libraries, I have had people emailing me because my email is on the banners, and they'll say, 
how can I help? You know, he said, I'm, I'm a retired person. Can I help some of the refugee students who are at the university? Or another one says, we run a la- language program at the TAFE. Do you think we could be involved in some way? You know, so there's the flow on effect. It's small, mm. but it's there. You know, another person said, you know, you know, I've had my children and I have lots of baby toys and clothes and I'd like to give those uh, away. You know, do you know if I can do so? You know? So it's it's these small things that do make a difference, I think. Yeah? Absolutely. Look, it's been fascinating talking to you, um, Jaya, and, and I really appreciate your time today. And I wish you all the best with your work in, in the future. Thank you very much. And that was Jaya Dantas, and she's a professor of international health at Curtin University. And she was talking about women refugees and their participation in the Photo Voice project. And the details of that project will be posted on the 3CR Communication Mixdown website. That's all we've got time for this week, unfortunately. Communication Mixdown will be here again next Thursday. Speak to you then.